Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the times of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, and our producer is Colin Kinnebera. This week, we are very excited to be joined by documentarian, writer, and organizer Astra Taylor, the author most recently of Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, which is out in hardback already, and next month will be out in paperback and audiobook, and you can order that from your favorite independent bookstore. She's also the director of What is Democracy, which uh, we'll talk about a bit in the interview and can be streamed at most places where you stream things that are not... Netflix. Astra's also the founder of the Deck Collective. Yeah, and since we're talking about um, getting books, let me just share a hack. Uh, not exactly a hack, but a, a website that my you know younger sister put me on to, bookshop.org, which turns out to be a great way to buy books online, uh, support independent booksellers, and they come pretty quick. Um, I've had some great experience with, with that site uh, in the last couple of weeks. So we were really excited to have Astra come on because she's just been writing about so many of the topics that are coming up like every day with the coronavirus crisis. You know, she co-wrote a, a brilliant op-ed on the food system and the ways that animal agriculture are making these kinds of pandemics more common. She's written a ton about debt and organizing around debt, which in the context of the kind of appearance of austerity in public debate is, is really huge. And of course, she's really written uh, the book. A book on democracy, a really great movie, What is Democracy, um, that kind of defend the notion of democracy, which again, I think is sort of under siege a little bit right now, as we have this yearning for sort of authoritarian expert rule uh, as a solution to all of our of our problems, climate change, uh, of course, as well as uh, COVID-19. Yeah, and I think something that I really appreciate about Astra is just how uh, adept she is at kind of bringing a lot of sort of different things together and really sitting in a lot of the, the kind of contradictions, um, which is a helpful approach to have in this moment when we are swimming through, you know, any number of contradictions. And, and we, you know, talk about that a lot in the interview. Um, so maybe before we get to our friend, Astra, let's talk for a minute about one of our enemies, Larry Summers. He's a super high profile economist. Kate, you've just written a piece about him. Um, for those listening who are curious, who is this person and why are so many of us getting so worked up about his reappearance uh, in the news? Oh, my God. Larry Summers. Uh, one of those people who you would just hope to never think about again. Uh, and yet here we are. Uh, so Larry Summers was the Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, um, was the chair of Obama's National Economic Council, uh, and it's just an all-around bad guy, uh, I, I would say. So, so Joe Biden has just announced that he um, has brought on Larry Summers to advise him on the economy, which is astounding because Larry Summers has basically only been wrong uh, about the economy for as long as he's been in in public life. Some of his, you know, best hits, which I which I kind of collate in the article, was that he is uh, friends with was longtime friends with Jeffrey Epstein the convicted predator. Uh, he suggested that uh, women's brains were not equipped to do math and science as well as their male counterparts. He said that uh, in a memo for the World Bank that Africa was underpolluted and that there would be, you know, efficiencies in, in, in polluting Africa. Uh, 
And importantly, and, and you know, we can talk about this, and, and Daniel and I have talked about this in, in various forms before, um, he also helped kind of torpedo the idea of a green stimulus the last time that the country was responding to an economic crisis. And he's back. He's back in, in our lives. Yeah, you know, I think I, I want to dwell just for a second on this uh, toxic memo, which is, you know, the name for this memo written in the early 90s that Summers signed, claims that he didn't write, but just signed it for debate. Um, where, like you said, he advocates uh, increasing pollution to to sub-Saharan Africa, which he says is underpolluted, um, and notes that the kind of economic logic of paying uh, lower-income countries to take on more pollution is unimpeachable. And I just note that you know Alyssa Battistoni, uh, you know our friend, co-author of of our uh, Green New Deal book, Planet to Win, she had a great tweet where she sort of pointed out that what's so disturbing about this toxic memo is that it's as Summer says uh, at the end of the memo, this is not just like a one-off ha-ha-ha or one-off cruelty, but it is embodies the core logic of market-based uh, environmental economics, right? Which is that um, there's a price on everything. And if for some reason, Southern parts of Africa have not been as badly polluted as elsewhere, well, then we should simply pay them to, to take on our pollution. So, in, you know, I think in a way, Summers exemplifies everything that's wrong with you know, neoclassical economics, all of its pathologies and all the ways that it it's like arid formulas of efficiency so perfectly match on to power imbalances uh, between the rich and, and the rest. Yeah. And I, I feel like an underrated point about Larry Summers, too, is just that he's uh, an asshole. Um, is is what every every account um, of, of his time in public life um brings up. I found I went back and, and looked at um Mike Grimwald's book, The New New Deal, which is um largely, you know, positive about the Obama stimulus and its and its green sort of aspects. Um, but he's very harsh on, on Larry Summers. And I just want to read uh quickly a, a quote from that. Uh Mike Grimwald says uh Describes, describes Larry Summers as a born alienator and a jealous turf warrior who seemed almost pathologically argumentative. And his meetings often devolved into academic cage fights that made consensus even less likely. The Summers style, he wrote, was to debate new ideas to death. One of his mantras was the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, which created a bias toward inaction. So if you can think of the the person you would want to have responding to an economic crisis and the climate crisis, um, Larry Summers is, is precisely the opposite of that. God, yeah. Well, also, you know, um, manipulating uh, an important principle of medical ethics to justify the outrageous wealth and power <laughs> of the rich. Um, but yeah, so, you know, there's two, I think, two books that we always come back to on the stimulus. You know, Mike Grenwald's uh, New New Deal, which I think, you know, we have a lot of political quibbles with, but there's some good information in there. And uh, Reed Hunt's A Crisis Wasted book. And I, to me, what's exciting about this moment and what Larry Summers' reappearance kind of represents is that we're now actually fighting over who will be the core economic advisors to Biden, a, a fight that wasn't really happening around uh, Obama's candidacy. So, uh, last week, we had Walid Shahid on the show from Justice Democrats. Justice Democrats now has an open letter, kind of a petition where uh, folks are signing on saying, keep Larry Summers out of Biden's transition team, out of the administration, out of any relationship whatsoever uh, with Biden's campaign and eventual you know, administration if he becomes uh, elected. Um, so I think, you know, we talked last time about the importance of these like massive uh, you know, fights over the future of the Democratic Party 
and uh, any subsequent administrations. And now we're seeing that play out over a very, very senior economist, which to my mind is a real sign of the maturation and the kind of rising influence and savviness of the uh, political left, including the climate left uh, right now. Does that seem right to you, Kate? Yeah, that seems right. And also, I mean, I, I've had a couple of conversations in um, reporting in the last couple of weeks and months, uh, thinking about what a possible Biden administration could look like. And and on a on a kind of hopeful end, people, economists in particular, who spend a lot of time briefing Congress people, briefing you know congressional staffers about about their work, um, really do seem to have a sense that the kind of you know deficit hawkishness, which definitely informed uh, Larry Summers' opposition to, to things like a, a really you know robust green stimulus, that that is actually sort of on its way out, uh, particularly among among kind of younger staffers who are, you know, uh, have have a more central place uh, in, in D.C. than they than they did 10 years ago. Um, so that, that's all kind of hopeful. It seems like, you know, Let's really hope that Larry Summers stays far, far away um, from any real decision-making power come 2021 or December of 2020. Um, but it seems like there is, you know, a real pushback to that, both from groups like Justice Democrats and Sunrise, who put out this open letter, but also, you know, hopefully from people kind of inside, inside the D.C. Beltway cesspool. <laughs> we, and we we salute we salute the young staffers who are you know surviving surviving DC right now. Um, we hope you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you for your service. Uh, so we will put links to the Sunrise Open Letter, the Justice Democrats Letter uh, on Summers in our show notes. Um, the federal government has enormous latitude to spend at will on economic stimulus and green economic stimulus. However, hot and bothered as a you know, small independent podcast does not have uh, quite the same financial resources. So in fact, to make this podcast happen, we are truly counting on listener support, uh, and in particular on uh, support through our Patreon. So if you've listened to the first few episodes of the show, um, of our new season, if you've liked what you've been hearing, if your income is protected, if you have a few uh, bucks a month to spare, and you haven't already signed up as a patron, please head over to patreon.com slash hot bothered climate to help support the production of this podcast. Uh, keep us on the air, sounding good. Keep our freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra, working. Uh, Kate, maybe you could say a word about the benefits of signing up as a patron to uh, Hot and Bothered. Yeah. So starting at $3 a month, uh, less than the price of the kind of over priced coffee uh, you are probably not able to buy now at your local cafe. Um, for $3 a month, you will get access to a virtual happy hour. Uh, our first one is going to be on May 4th with Daniel and I. It is, of course, May the 4th. Um, I'm a big Star Wars fan. There may be a quiz of some sort, and it may or may not be uh, Star Wars related. and may or may not feature one of my favorite Star Wars films, Episode 1. Um, so we can talk about that more. Uh, on May 4th, if, if you are kind enough to, to donate $3. If you pitch in $5 or more a month, you get access to lots of other good stuff like our book, A Planet to Win, co-authored with Alyssa Battistoni and Theoria Frankos. You get a digital subscription to Descent. There are other Verso books you can pick up. 
like Extreme Cities, my friend Ashley Dawson, and and more great titles. And you know, one one more thing I just want to know is if you have been on the fence or thinking about signing up but haven't done it yet. If you sign up today, literally today, if you're listening to this before May 1st, you will automatically be bumped up to the next membership tier. This week is your last chance to get those those extra perks. So sign up if you can and help keep the podcast free for anyone to listen to. We are at patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. So please give what you can. And, and, you know, just a quick note, if, if like me, you enjoy Star Wars, but are truly a Star Trek uh, supremacist um, as I am, May the 4th is still a good day. It's a fun time. We appreciate the the Rebel Alliance and all that they've done, right? So, um, you know, it's a it's a inclusive atmosphere that we're going to have. Um, but we will, I think, focus on 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 Star Wars on on May the fourth. We also realize this might not be a time when everyone is able to pitch in, um, and that's totally fine. Uh, we'd still really love your support for the podcast, and in particular, please spread the word. Uh, tell your friends that you're listening to the show, tweet about us um, or post about us on Instagram, hashtag hot bothered climate. Uh, rating us and reviewing us on iTunes is super helpful for helping us find uh, new listeners um, or you know sharing or, or saying nice things about the podcast on your own platform of choice. And do feel free to get in touch. Um, feedback, suggestions for guests, anything at all, really at uh, hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So without further ado, this is Astor Taylor. Astor Taylor, welcome to Hot and Bothered. Thanks for having me. How is quarantine treating you? Objectively, I can't complain. You know, I'm I'm fed, I'm with family, I'm I came down to North Carolina so that I could help with childcare, so I, I get to um, play with my nephew and my nieces. Um, but I think like everybody, there's ups and downs because there's just such a deluge of bad news every day. So taking it day by day. Yeah, that's sort of where, where I'm at too. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, this this really great op-ed that you wrote along with, and I might butcher his name, Jan Dutkiewicz and Trevitis. Um, which I think is, you know, relevant insofar as food seems to be taking on a kind of new importance as we're all locked down and, you know, don't have the outlet of going out to bars or, you know, hanging out with people. Um, so, you know, turning to our sourdough starters and beans and, and kitchens. Um, but you make the case that the coronavirus should be a wake up call about our food system and meat consumption in particular. And even among eco-socialists, this does not tend to be a popular subject. So I'm wondering if you could say how you decided to write this piece up now and why COVID-19 should make us think more seriously about meat, especially. I mean, the I think it's important when we're talking about what's happening with this novel coronavirus, you know, that the, we frame it not as a strictly natural disaster. And I think we see this in the economic sphere, but there's a, another sense in which this is not a natural disaster. And that's because the origins of this virus come from human uh, encroachment on the natural world and on, uh, on animals, right? So zoonotic diseases 
are diseases that jump from animals, from wild animals, typically to um, human beings or to, to livestock. And this is this this virus is one of those diseases. And so we have to to understand how it emerged. We have to look at the, the nature of that encroachment. And it has to do with industrial land use. It has to do with our food supply. It has to do with the way that we exploit the natural world, the way that we treat the natural world and the animals in it as, as just resources, as raw material, as, as something we can, um, you know, we can just ignore and abuse and, and, and um, take their space. So the, the, the thing is that a lot of diseases, a lot of, um, epidemics we face are zoonotic diseases. And so, you know, we can look at, at this pandemic, but, you know, going back also to HIV, HIV emerged, um, it jumped uh, species because people were eating bushmeat. So probably maybe chimpanzees, um, Ebola, I mean, all sorts of these, these diseases that we all know of, that we all fear, right? That, that capture the public imagination and many more, many that are more obscure. Um, are are actually due to this phenomenon of, of pathogens jumping the species barrier. And if you look beneath the surface, you'll see that political economy is at play. I mean, in the case of HIV, uh, you know, it looked like the hunters were actually partly hunting bushmeat because um, they weren't able to fish because they had been um, they had been forced out of the waters by a larger scale industry. And so um, there's also lots of evidence that in the area in China where the uh, virus that causes COVID-19 emerged, that industrial farming was also pushing people um, into industrial farming and more, you know, quote unquote, traditional livestock was pushing people to um, to farm or hunt uh, wild game and bring that to these, you know, so-called wet markets, which we act like, you know, they're this exotic thing, but really just markets where, where meats are sold. So I think it's just important to to know the first thing in the piece is just to concisely explain that that's the background for this pandemic. So it's, you know, it's a political uh, disease in that sense. One of the reactions that I saw to your piece online um, was this idea that is it really, do we really have to talk about a vegan system? Is there a concern that if we're trying to eliminate all animal products that we're then um, not really in tune with, you know, large peasant movements like Via Campesina, movements around agroecology that still see a role for animals, uh, you know, for meat and for things like dairy, albeit in far, far, far diminished quantities than you get from the industrial food system. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, was the idea just a radical reduction? Is the idea complete elimination? How do you kind of, you know, speak back to the, to the view that veganism, you know, can't really be like an encompassing global project? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the first thing to say before we get into that is, is you know, a few words on our current food system, and, and I, I really mean ours and the sort of developed world and in in the United States, um, you know, and I think um, this, the thing is that we all know, we all have, we we all have a basic knowledge. I think anyone who would be listening to your podcast that there's this sort of extra land use involved in meat production because first you have to grow the crops and the grains, and then you know, and that is then. Um, used for feed. So, you know, lots of soy is used to make tofu that vegans eat, but a lot of even more soy is used to feed, you know, cows and, and pigs and, and to create this, you know, protein out of protein. And so 
you know, these systems, right, are what are sort of the groundwork that we have to talk about before we talk about why a vegan alternative is, is worth thinking about. And, you know, one thing I left out in my, in my sort of opening monologue was that another factor, another reason we're arguing for uh, weaning ourselves off of, of meat is because the, the sort of industrial factory farm-based food system, it not only, um, you know, requires this a destruction of land to, to grow crops and grains, right? So it's deforesting, you know, we're, we're seeing massive deforestation of the, of the Amazon, for example, but also that it poses other disease threats. So it's not just that these zoonotic diseases jump from wild animals to humans. Um, they also breed on factory farms because factory farms are, you know, sort of their, their perfect laboratories or petri dishes, right? Because you've got sometimes hundreds of thousands of animals crammed into these hellish conditions. And so they get sick. And also they're they're there, uh, you know, crammed next to human beings. So, you know, we see that the, the human workers in these factory farms, I mean, not only are they just subjected to totally horrible, um, dehumanizing working conditions where they're often maimed or, you know, they, they aren't allowed to do things like go to the bathroom and there's not basic sanitation, but they also often get sick from these diseases first. Lastly, I mean, there's another factor I have to say, which is that what they do because they've crammed so many animals into these factory farms is um, the management basically uses antibiotics as a sort of um, preventative measure. So there's just tons of antibiotics in the in the feed and that this is contributing massively to antibiotic resistance. So right now we're dealing with you know COVID-19. That's the pandemic of this moment. But if you read um, scientists and you know um, epidemiologists who are, who are working on future threats. One thing they're really, really afraid of is, you know, um, antibiotic resistance uh, gone wild, uh, and you know, probably will be due to industrial agriculture. I mean, and so that means like a, a world, yeah, where you can't go to the hospital for like a basic surgery because you're going to become infected with something that makes staff look mild. So, I mean, you know, I'm not a dictator. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, you know, so I think when you're, you're writing in a 1000 word op-ed, you know, you, you make your case forcefully. We're saying, you know, if we had a vegan food system, we would be in a much healthier place. It would eliminate this, this problem of factory farms and antibiotic resistance, for example. Um, it would use a lot less land. So between farming, ranching and feed crops, right, the livestock industry gobbles up 40% of the world's habitable surface. So one thing we point out is that a vegan food system would require a tenth as much land. So this would um, this would rewild the world. This would have beneficial effects in terms of climate change, but it also have beneficial effects in terms of future pandemics because biodiversity is actually really critical. Um, biodiverse areas serve as a kind of buffer zone um, that prevent the spread of these uh, zoonotic diseases. So, you know... We knew that this this call, this sort of explicit call for um, uh, going vegan would be provocative, um, you know, and I mean, I'm a realist, so I would take any sort of half measure. I would love to see um, more responsible farming. I'd love to see uh, less meat and less dairy um, and less eggs consumed in the world. Um, so, you know, I'm sympathetic to... Um, I'm sympathetic to indigenous people who have different relationships to the land and who, you know, have uh, tradition, traditional uh, farming and hunting techniques. I think in the U.S. right now, um, the sensible thing is for people to massively reduce the amount of meat they consume 
and to be as close to vegan as possible. Uh, but if I could have a world where people, um, you know, adapted their practices and ate less meat and less dairy and learned from these peasant movements and from um, agroecology and other, uh, you know, farming techniques, you know, I'm, I'm down with that. I think for me, the thing is fundamentally, I am, I come to the vegan issue less from a uh, sort of food systems or even um, like uh, ecological perspective and ultimately from a, from an ethical perspective. I mean, I think for me, a system that exploits animals and treats animals as property is incompatible with my vision of socialism. I think if we're going to interrogate private property and, and, you know, privatization and ownership, I think we also have to ask, you know, on what grounds can we own other beings lives, right? Like what gives human beings the, the right to treat animals like things or like machines, because I, you know, I think there's a strong case we made that what we do is actually we, we are turning animal bodies into machines in industrial agriculture. Um, and so I think for me, there's a kind of core principle there that um, is sort of foundational to my worldview. It's like, on what grounds can we own animals if we're calling ownership uh, into question? Yeah, and to start to kind of broaden broaden out a bit, um, which speaks to something you, you raised in the piece. I mean, the last couple of weeks, I think, has made me personally just think a lot about uh, what collective action means. Um, I think, you know, in, in kind of climate world, the reference is made a lot to World War II, to these sort of big domestic mobilizations. Um, but we're now seeing, you know, in, in real time, millions of people actively staying home um, on state orders, yes, but also out of this sort of sense of um, real kind of genuine civic obligation uh, to keep to keep people safe um, in a way that, you know, would not be enforceable if, if you know, massive amounts of people were actually sort of rebelling against them. Um, so in the piece, you write that there might be something to that, particularly when it comes to changing the food system. And just to quote briefly, you say, Individually, we must stop eating animal products. Collectively, we must transform the global food system. So I'm wondering if you could say, you know, why is it necessary to be thinking on both of these levels? And not, not just for the food system, but I think this is a pretty live debate uh, when it comes to climate action in general uh, about, you know, what the relationship between individual and, and sort of state action looks like. And, and why, you know, isn't it quite enough just to say... It's all structural. You know, I think we have, I'm, I'm very into paradoxes, I guess is how I would begin this, right? I, I, I wrote a book called Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when, when it's gone. And it, each chapter is about a paradox that we have to inhabit that's sort of essential to democracy. I mean, there's, there are, and I think one of the, one of the, the paradoxes of political life is exactly this. It's that, you know, it's, it's that we're, we're individuals, but we're also embedded in, in, in a collective um, context. And as leftists, right, we're always trying to bridge that gap. We're always trying to skip, to connect the individual to the collective, to aggregate power in order to force change at, a, at, at the sort of structural, um, at the structural level. So it's interesting to me because one of the rebukes to um, conversations around veganism on the left is often that, okay, well, it's just an individual choice. It's kind of almost like lifestyle politics. Um, 
And, you know, I've felt frustrated over the years because I've, I've felt basically that my comrades were, were almost like, you know, capitalism shapes every choice we make, except what I eat. That just happens to be spontaneous. I just eat what I like. <laughs> and, you know, the thing is, our diets are shaped by these larger structural forces, right? Of course they are. I mean, um, you know, the history, there's, there are rich histories that people should look into about like, well, how did it, how did it come to be that Americans, you know, just assume that you need to drink milk to be healthy. Well, it turns out there's a whole history of, of, um, you know, that involves a sort of post-World War II era. You know, uh, the meat industry spends just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars annually across the globe, advertising its products and creating a market. Um, and, you know, the huge effort is going into exporting the idea that meat is essential to a good life to countries that haven't been as as um obsessed with their their stake as Americans are right in order to um keep expanding the market so i guess um in that sense i guess i would say our choices are already what i'm trying to say is our choices are always collective in that sense in the sense that they're never made in an individual vacuum but i think that you know there is there there are to kind of critique the vegans and not just the left, I think, you know, vegans have, have focused too much on individual choices and haven't had um, the sort of political economic critique that is really important. And that's because, you know, a lot of different uh, things draw people to veganism. And sometimes it's about health and, um, you know, sometimes it's just about sort of, um, you know, yeah, this idea of personal choices being pure, um, you know, sometimes it's about whatever diet and weight loss. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think not all vegans are making, in, in my opinion, the sort of right arguments about what, what we need to do to change. Um, but I, I think that the first step for sort of getting over this dilemma is, you know, just being very direct about what the stakes of our food choices are. And there's so much evidence at this point that reducing the amount of meat in our diet uh, would be incredibly significant in terms of uh, reducing greenhouse gases, in terms of preventing the spread of these zoonotic diseases. I mean, we quote um, the American Journal of Public Health in the piece, for example, and they say, quote, changing the way humans treat animals, most basically ceasing to eat them, or at the very least, radically limiting the quantity of quantity of them that are eaten is largely off the radar as a significant preventative measure. But, you know, there's, they're arguing that it definitely should be. Um, and we also quote the U UN Environment Program that warned in 2016 that, um, that you know, our system of livestock farming is a zoonotic disaster waiting to happen. Um, you know, the UN has also uh, made very strong arguments about the connections between livestock farming and climate change. So I think, um, you know, I think the first, we're still at sort of stage one, which is sort of being, making explicit that, uh, that, that meat has sort of social negative social and political consequences, just like we talk about the fossil fuel sector, right? Just like we talk about other destructive industries. I don't understand why I just, you know, to me, it's befuddling why, um, meat has gotten a pass from the left. Yeah, I want to, um, I mean, you brought up paradoxes, which are kind of a structuring principle of your book. Um, and I want to dig into more of those and kind of um, shift to 
the sort of other massive subject uh, your book is about, which is democracy. Um, so this is a pretty bizarre political moment for a lot of reasons. And, and, and part of what's made it so striking, especially here in New York, um, is the types of, of kind of political heroes who are who are starting to emerge. Uh, our governor, Andrew Cuomo, has become this oh, sort of God. national... <laughs> yeah, he's this kind of national <laughs> fixation, despite uh, despite having spent the last year leading a charge to cut Medicaid payments, overseeing the country's worst and arguably preventable outbreak of, of COVID-19. Um, so, you know, people being horny for Andrew Cuomo is depressing for any number of reasons. Um, but... In particular, there seems to be uh, at least a, a part of the liberal imagination, let's call it, that wants a, a strong manager who, you know, will just tell them what to do when everything seems so uncertain. And his, you know, nightly uh, press briefings seem to do that for some people. Um, so, you know, you are, are familiar with with Andrew Cuomo, of course. Um, so, you know, do you think this and and this kind of broader trend of people um, really being drawn to these kind of uh, strong manager types. Um, do you think this is evidence of some kind of anti-democratic impulse? And, and, and what should the left make of that, especially in the context of a climate crisis where we know that there are more you know, catastrophic existential events in the pipeline? Mm, I mean, I think, you know, Cuomo is really on my mind today because we just got word that he, I mean, you know, is it technically the Board of Elections, but that Cuomo called off the New York primary. And it's pretty clear that the reason to do this is, um, I mean, on the one hand, so that Bernie Sanders doesn't have uh, as many delegates going into the convention, even though he suspended his campaign, it's a way of just sort of... Um, limiting the uh, impact of progressives, but also to to damage down-ballot races that were kind of hoping for a diminished Sanders bump. <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is the thing. It's like when, when liberals hold up figures like Cuomo as, you know, sort of democratic heroes in contrast to Trump, but then what these democratic heroes are actually doing is literally like suspending elections, which are like the, the baseline, most sort of um, minimalist conception of democracy you have. I mean, it just shows what a bind we're in. Um, I don't know. I don't understand the Cuomo love. I'm, I mean, I, I, I think it might just be that people don't know the details because it does seem like a lot of New Yorkers are trying to correct the record. I had to very patiently explain to my mother uh, <laughs> why Andrew Cuomo was bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, some of it's just ignorance. And I think there has been a real um, fetishization of competence. You know, this is there have been many destructive consequences of a Donald Trump presidency. And one is this, this, you know, um, this desire for someone who actually like performs competence, but like regardless of whether what they're doing is actually beneficial. So I think he is connecting with that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think democracy, one of the challenges of democracy is that, you know, it, it is a lot of work, right? It's, it's frustrating. I think, you know, all of us, I mean, I've certainly had, um, I've certainly wished that there were people running the show who could be trusted and, and that the situation we're in didn't demand that I 
spend so much time on my activism and so I could do the things I like to do, like, you know, play piano and read books and be a nerd at home. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, we, we, we can kind of empathize with a bit of the impulse while also just being really critical of it and just thinking that it is a total misunderstanding of <laughs> what democracy uh, demands and, you know, also how power operates. Um, you know, I think, I, you know, I'm, but I'm skeptical at this. I, I'm, I do always resist this idea that, you know, people just intrinsically want a strong figure, you know, and always like a strong man um, to, to, to lead the show. I mean, I think we see really conflicting impulses because we also see in moments of emergency, you know, a lot of people becoming activated and, um, and helping in their community in ways that they hadn't before, right? We see suddenly people realizing, hey, you know, we can't depend on the state, so we depend on ourselves. Um, so I, I, you know, there's, there's dual tendencies happening out there, you know, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure what, what, which one will win out in this crisis, particularly, but I don't, I don't think it has to necessarily bode well for Cuomo and his ilk. Um, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. (laughs) Since he is slashing budgets uh, and making, making things worse for so, so many people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's it, right? I mean, that's the thing, like he, right now he has immense power, like one thing he wrote into um, you know, he he took advantage of the pandemic and gave himself the power to call off the primary. So I, but I don't I don't know if that's what people wanted him to do, right? I mean, he was in a position to seize the power and to use it in really troubling ways. Um, I guess I'm just challenging the idea that people were asking for it. <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, so let me. <laughs> Let me push you a bit more on democracy because I think we're, yeah. we're taking advantage of you as a mm-hmm. big democracy defender. Um, I'm not an eco-fascist, obviously, or eco-authoritarian, but I'm going to pretend to be one for a second or a, a liberal one. So, you know, in your uh, movie, What is Democracy? There's a really fascinating bit where Cornell West is making the argument that United States, um, a lot of the gains of the civil rights movement have come through institutions and actions that don't necessarily represent majoritarian opinion, whether it's the Emancipation Proclamation um, Supreme Court rulings, uh, and so on. Um, so obviously there is like a lot of social movement agitation, but there are also these institutions that are a check on, on majoritarian, um, impulses. And I guess, um, to me, the most compelling of the kind of, at least let's say the liberal version of the eco-authoritarian fantasy is that there would be public institutions that would be insulated from everyday political pressure, that there would basically be like a deep, no carbon state run by, you know, scientifically minded post-partisan bureaucrats, and that they would be the guarantor of climate action, while, you know, we argued about other things um, that were less important or something. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess I'm kind of curious, like, how do you think about, and I'm, maybe this is informed by COVID or, or maybe not, but but how do you think about the, the kind of balance between, like, strong, stable institutions um, and just the cut and thrust of, of politics and kind of people getting organized and agitated in the, in the everyday, like what, what do you see as kind of the, the balance there? Yeah. I mean, so two thoughts. I mean, I, you know, one of the chapters in the book and one of the paradoxes I I weigh into is sort of precisely this it's structure versus spontaneity. So, you know, what democracy is these sort of rules and institutions and stable regimes, you know, the sort of basic constitutional rights we supposedly have, or at least have on paper, um, the laws that are written, you know, um, 
you know, so so these these ways that we're taught to think about government, you know, um, uh, in a kind of legalistic way, but but that government, you know, democracy does require these structures and institutions that are not just um, changing willy nilly, and you know, this the concern over. Um, the tyranny of the majority, I think, you know, is a valid concern. I think, I think there's a way in which liberals invoke the tyranny of the majority because they're actually afraid of, of uh, it, they do it in a kind of cynical way because they're actually just, you know, don't like leftists and don't like democracy. <laughs> but there is something, there's something very valid to it, right? Like we can't, we can't um, uh, ignore that. Um, and the, but then we also know from looking back at history that that there's this other side, this messy, spontaneous, um, rabble-rousing side, right? That you need to, democracy sort of erupts and has to break things. And then hopefully um, that coalesces into new and better regimes, new and better rules, right? So you kind of have this rebellion and then, you know, kind of rulemaking and these two things are part of the process. I guess I would, you know, you know, so my goal as an organizer, you know, is to change laws, right? It's to build power so that I can make demands of the state and change laws and institute um, new systems, you know, systems of uh, public support and, um, and you know, make an actual robust safety net. So, you know, in these in this sense, you know, you, you agitate in order to transform the state, or at least, you know, I think a lot of us who identify as socialists want to do that. Um, but that, I mean, so I think acknowledging that that's the dynamic, you know, it doesn't really get to the question you're asking, which is like, okay, what, but what about a sort of technocracy that actually worked, right? Like, isn't there scientific expertise? Aren't there all sorts of kinds of expertise that democracy depends on? And I think, I think that's true. Um, the problem with the sort of technocratic experiment we've had over the last few decades, which has been deeply connected to neoliberalism, is that there was technocracy in the context or this kind of rule by experts in the context of massive economic inequality and a massive power imbalance. And so those experts were often, you know, serving the ruling classes. And, you know, so I think what, what sort of political economic system would make um, a sort of uh, you know, this, this, this ideal of neutral expertise actually possible. What would make a system where, um, you know, where we could actually, uh, you know, have this sort of conversation about science and facts that liberals fetishize? Well, it would have to be in a, in a world that was far more, I think, economically egalitarian um, and where, um, where there wasn't such massive disparities in wealth and where, you know, where um, things like education or, um, you know, healthcare or, you know, name a sort of area of, of social life where those areas weren't being instrumentalized for profit, right? Because that's what happens under capitalism is that these things that, you know, should be public goods are, um, are twisted to serve, you know, a, a different and market-driven purpose. So in that sense, I think, you know, one of my responses to sort of liberal commentators who bemoan the end of democracy in November 2016, you know, and, and who talk about how, you know, we need to restore our norms and restore democracy and listen to science and whatever their sort of catchphrases are is like, well, you know, um, what you need in order to have these virtues that you claim to value, you know, to even have like basic liberal rights, you need socialism to underpin those those values, right, to make them actually 
actually real. And I think, you know, there's an argument to be made that to have a system in which expertise is actually respected and where people are able to live a life of the mind and engage in scientific inquiry and free inquiry, then you you also need a, a different economic paradigm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's really helpful. And I guess, I mean, just to make sure I understand mm-hmm. kind of exactly what you're saying, I think it's it sounds like, you know, we might have this, or, or liberals rather might have this fantasy if you could just have like Fauci without Trump, um, but then they leave out all the conditions under which that would actually work or something like that. Like this fantasy that you can have the scientists without the economic democracy um, is this kind of recurrent fact-free illusion. Is that right? Yeah. And I think a lot of scientists you know, know this. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, about my father, who's a medicinal chemist at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. I mean, science is completely shaped by um, by economic incentives. You know, if you're at a public university that is, um, you know, being uh, starved for revenue, well, then you end up having to go to the private sector to support your research. So that draws you away from things like, you know, in scientific research that serves the public good, for example, wanting to do research in broad scale antibiotics or new forms of uh, um, combating, you know, bacterial infections, and then wanting to, you know, to, to having to specialize in whatever um, the pharmaceutical sector thinks would be a, a profitable medicine or it is a profitable disease to focus on. I mean, and so this is, this isn't news to a lot of scientists. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. That's why the kind of things of, you know, just trust the experts. What's well, like, what are the political economic conditions that these experts are are operating in? So, you know, I think that that's, that's the thing. It's like technocracy, it sounds nice, but what are the conditions to make it possible? You know, the same thing, like, you know, um, rights, human rights, that those, those are great too, but what are the economic underpinnings that need to be uh, in place in order to make them substantive and, and real? So those are, I think those are the sort of, background factors that are too often left out. And I think, you know, that's where the left, you know, we, we, um, you know, it's not, it's not that wanting, uh, you know, experts or adults in the room is necessarily anti-democratic, right? I mean, I don't think democracy is all of us weighing in on everything all the time. (laughs) I mean, I think that's not, um, that's a pretty facile notion of what, what democracy is. It's, you know, it's it's creating a society, again, to go back to these paradoxes, where these tensions can be balanced uh, uh, more productively. Yeah. And, and you know, speaking of, um, of economic underpinnings, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about debt, uh, which mm-hmm. you've, you've done a lot of work on. Um, so, you know, you've written about, and many other people have as well, about this concept of climate debt. And uh, reparations, uh, often you know, coming from places that have historically contributed to the least, the least to the climate crisis, namely the global south. Um, but those are also the places among the worst hit already by it. So, you know, could you say uh, what what climate debt is? Um, and to get back to what we were talking about earlier, is there any hope that electoral majorities in rich countries might support? something like climate reparations. We've just seen this fight um, with the U.S. uh, sort of rejecting calls to expand 
expand special drawing rights in the IMF, this kind of reserve currency, which would be a lifeline to the global south. Um, so it's still, you know, a hot issue for certain sets of the American right. Um, you know, and, and do you think this is one of those cases where uh, we might need institutions that aren't uh, majoritarian to make to make this kind of decision? Well, I mean, it's interesting. So, I mean, the, so you've just phrased this, we might need institutions that aren't majoritarian, but the problem is they aren't majoritarian now, right? They're yeah, majoritarian. No. <laughs> so it's the always, IMF is not right? majoritarian. Um, the IMF is definitely not majoritarian. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think those categories alone get us to where we want to be, right? Like, I don't think you can simply say something's democratic because it's majoritarian or it's minoritarian. Um, uh, I mean, I think you know, everything is a struggle. Right. We're we're in a struggle over the way we understand and the way the public understands the, their lives. And, you know, at this moment, you know, I think there there is opening for an interesting conversation about internationalism and, oh, you know, and, and what our relationship as Americans is to the to the rest of the world or as Canadian Americans, as I think Daniel might be, too. Um, I'm not sure about that. But I am. Yeah. 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 On- <laughs> Just borderless living, you know. Yes, the settler colonialist Canadian Americans. Um, so, I mean, so you know, I think this this is, um, you know, it's in a moment where the pandemic really the pandemic by definition is global, right? So it really challenges a, a an isolationist approach. I mean, that doesn't make mean Trump's not trying one, um, but it the the fact is that it sort of underscores that we are. Uh, connected to people who are are distant from us, and that we are, you know, in a way, only as healthy as our least off neighbor. So, you know, I hope we can take advantage of this moment and and think about um, what what that means in a policy perspective. And I think, you know, there's a lot of public outrage about Trump uh, retreating from international collaborations, whether that's like, you know, defunding the World Health Organization or refusing to be partners on some you know, international uh, efforts to come up with a vaccine. Um, and I think there there are lots of reasons to tie this larger conversation about uh, debt <laughs> and uh, the colonial sort of history that has caused so many nations to be so indebted in this moment. I mean, the, the, the questions of sovereign debt and the debt crisis facing um, countries is really critical. I mean, because what we've seen, we know we're in the middle of uh, an economic crisis that you know we all agree is probably going to rival the Great Depression. But it's also caused a stampede of capital out of uh, poor countries, and so huge amounts of um, capital flight. And there's definitely going to be an you know, so this this means less uh, state revenue, and it means that countries will be driven deeper into debt, and that this debt often comes with terms that demand austerity measures, and and so it's a a crisis that has caused uh, not just activists, but you know, even uh, the UN to demand mass uh, debt cancellation for developing countries. Um, so, I mean, I think. The, the arguments for debt cancellation right now uh, are really, really strong. The question of like what institutions would do it, uh, you know, that's that's the million dollar question, or in this case, I guess a trillion dollars, because that's what the UN is calling for, a trillion dollars of debt cancellation. Um, 
no, I, I think my, my, my response to the question of whether those institutions need to be majoritarian or minoritarian is actually that it would be better if um, our global structures, right, the few sort of global institutions we have, it would be far better if they were more majoritarian. Because right now they're, they're you know, we know that part of the problem is the United States has you know, disproportionate weight in all of these international or transnational bodies, whether we're talking about the World Trade Organization or the IMF or the UN Security Council, right? It's like there's <laughs> the, the last thing the United States wants is transnational institutions that give poor countries equal weight. So in this sense, I think, you know, more democracy would be better. More democracy would lead to more debt relief for developing countries. And the fact is, part of why ruling elites have been skeptical of democracy from the beginning is precisely because they know democracy leads to debt relief. So go back to the founding fathers. Go back to James Madison, who was you know, extremely worried about um, uh, our, the American system being too participatory. And you know, he railed against different things. He railed against factions. Uh, you know, he railed against... Um, uh, you know, he 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 railed against the idea of sort of the rabble ruling, but he also, you know, was really worried about debt abolition and that what would happen if sort of regular people got too much political power was that they'd demand their debts be uh, erased. Um, uh, if you go back even further, back to the beginning of, you know, Western democracy or the, the sort of mythic beginning of Western democracy in ancient Rome or ancient Greece, it was debtors' revolts that, that set things off. So, you know, there have always been democratic struggles around debt. And one of the big motivations for uh, for keeping democracy limited and constrained is that um, the wealthy don't want the poor to demand their debts get canceled. And we see that playing out today. This um, really interesting answer, I think, brings us to, you know, yet another paradox um, <laughs> or, or attention, maybe. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm always mixing up my paradoxes and just ordinarily difficult issues. Um, but um, so you raised this point, um, which is that, you know, at its core, kind of democracy is, you know, has everything to do with this kind of like anti-debt um, movement. Uh, and I think you see some aspects of that playing out in the U.S. right now. I mean, I think there is a lot of discussion about the argument has been won. We can spend trillions of dollars now. Um, the people who say that deficits and debt have to control everything uh, have finally been vanquished. But I'm not sure that that's 100% true. We're also seeing, as we talked about before, like the turn to austerity. You know, we talked about Andrew Cuomo. I live in Philly. The mayor of Philly has already announced, you know, budget cuts, mayor of New York. And, and I think we're sort of seeing this um, everywhere. And I'm sure based on your experience and the time you spent in Greece, you know that austerity is never vanquished. It's, it's, it's coming around. So I guess I'm kind of curious to hear you say a little bit about from your experience, how might we worry about political elites coming back at us and using debt and the emotional baggage of debt and the ostensible economic calamities that go with debt and deficits to kind of limit economic democracy, to say, you know, the situation is so catastrophic that we really, really, really have to cut back, use debt as a cudgel against democracy. And if that's not a big enough question, I mean, you know, how to fight back um, against that. Yeah, no, I, I'm actually really with you. I think, you know, there is this... Um, line that's circulating right now that's like, okay, you know, the the 
old idea that we can't um, spend is now gone. And, you know, we won't have to have this debate about, you know, how do we pay for it anymore? And the thing is, you know, they're the, the Republicans were always happy to deficit spend as long as it was on their issues, right? As long as they were deficit spending for the military or causing the deficit to grow because they were slashing taxes. Um, and so they just did a little less hand-wringing and, and generated way more money this time around. Um, and I think you're exactly right that that we're about to see, you know, it's sort of debt works for them twice in the sense that they'll add to the public deficit and then they use that as an excuse to cut social services. So then that's that's the basis of their arguments for austerity. And it's incredibly destructive. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's wrong, but it, it is working for them. And I think we're, especially at the state level, because the states, you know, can't print money the way the federal government can, and the states are dependent on state taxes, it's going to be, um, you know, really, really hostile terrain moving forward. And, and these these questions of public budgets, you know, have immediate implications for people's lives um, in, in immediate and, you know, are connected to how much debt people take. I mean, if you go back, for example, I was just working on a section where, so that I'm part of a group called the Debt Collective. So we're a union for debtors. Um, and the idea is essentially that debtors should get organized, you know, in, in ways that are complementary to the labor movement and, and try to, um, open up new avenues to sort of fight uh, financialization and, you know, recognize that our debts are assets and can be leveraged to push for change. Um, and so we're working on a, a little pamphlet and just looking back at the history of Black Lives Matter and the uprising in Ferguson. And, you know, what we saw there was, you know, exactly um, what we will be able to expect in other cities, you know, just sort of the basic logic of austerity is when, when there's no um, tax revenue because, you know, the rich have gone on a permanent tax strike or have left for uh, richer enclaves, then what happens is these sort of regressive modes of taxation are imposed on residents and they come in the form of, you know, criminal justice fines and fees. And so we saw, you know, in, in that community, you saw people getting um, sort of ticketed for minor, you know, sort of ridiculous offenses like leaving a garbage can on the street or whatever, or not having a brake light. And this was what this this was what the city was actually doing to generate revenue, because it had no other it had no other revenue streams. And then people were winding up in jail. And of course it was, you know, incredibly um, racialized and and very violent and disruptive of people's lives. I mean, so so this question of budgets has in, incredible devastating consequences on on people's lives. So I think, you know, I think we're actually in a really challenging in a challenging place because the progressives don't control the magic money tree right now. Um, and so I, you know, I think what the debt collective has been doing, I mean, on a sort of practical level is, you know, we still, we still need to push back against that argument for austerity. And, and the thing is, it, you know, it, it is, um, you know, it's, it's, a logical argument, right? It's like, okay, the state has no money, therefore it has to cut social services. But, you know, we can counter it with another logical argument, which is that basically it's it's the cuts that are causing us 
to be broke and causing us to suffer. In other words, we're not in debt because we live beyond our means. We're in debt because we're denied the means to live. And if there was public investment, if there was deficit spending on things that were actually socially productive, like public health care and green infrastructure and green public housing, which I'm sure you'd approve of, and all of these other um social goods, and actually we would be collectively richer. And in the long run, the deficits wouldn't matter, right? Because we would become, we would all be better off. And, you know, so I think right now we're in a political struggle. And what we have to do is figure out like what, what new formations we can create so that we can uh, push against this. I mean, so my energy is spent um, on, on, uh, organizing debtors and trying to get debtors to come together and make demands of creditors and uh, and the state for debt cancellation. You know, and I think the, our arguments are stronger than ever, but what we really need to do is build the power and base build so that we can, um, so we can have more of an impact. The thing is they're going to go, they're going to go back to that austerity playbook because it's worked for them. And uh, I don't think, I don't think we've defeated that monster, sadly. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a it's such a strange moment uh, to be doing and and thinking about politics because on the one hand you know all the wrong people um, seem to be in charge in most places mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time you know basically every lie we've been told about how the economy works is just busting open um, at the seams and it seems like you know not maybe unlike the 1930s or the 1970s. Um, we're at a place where, you know, the institutions that have been set up and kind of defined the status quo are just objectively failing to deal um, with with the crises we're facing. So I'm wondering how you're thinking about, about what it looks like to build solidarity around debt, um, which is the work you've been doing for a while. And it's just such a big category. Um, you know, there are debtor nations and there are, you know, debtors everywhere. Um, so, you know, what does it look like to take advantage of this moment, um, to really build something that's more broadly sustainable on the other side? I I mean, I think organizing around debt at this juncture is really critical because what's happening is, you know, when, when people lose their incomes, which we see when tens of millions of people lose their jobs overnight, is that they're going to take on more debt. They're going to spiral more swiftly into default. Um, We also have seen some interesting openings. So I guess this is the sort of silver lining of this moment, right? We've seen across the country at the state and the local level moratoriums on debt collection, right? Moratoriums on evictions. Uh, Mortgage holders were given a pause, something they weren't given back in 2008. Um, We're seeing bills, bill collections paused and so on. So what we're seeing is this sort of... um, this sort of crack in the facade, right? All these things that were we were told weren't possible were act, are actually possible. Um, and you know, we've shown. I think the debt collective has demonstrated pretty clearly that if if debtors organize, they can win. So we organized a student debt strike that kicked off in 2015. Um, it's now expanded from the for-profit sector to include all student uh, borrowers. But we've won about a billion and a half dollars to date. Uh, we've successfully protected our wins and continued to get debt relief, even though Betsy DeVos is the secretary of education. We have, uh, you know, and this was a strike that began with 15 people and that, you know, ended up winning all of this money and also changing federal law so that defrauded uh, student borrowers could get their debts erased, you know, which is 
an accomplishment in a world where student debtors don't have access to bankruptcy protections, thanks to somebody named Joe Biden. So, um, you know, so I, I think there's there's potential here. And I would say that what debtors should do is and if they have student debt, they should join the uh, debt collective student debt strike um, because the case for student debt cancellation has never been stronger. And there has been a kind of tectonic shift among the Democrats on this issue. Um, and it's something, it's a kind of um, debt relief that can be granted very swiftly by the federal government. It's very centralized. It's something that could happen um, in an instant, basically, and uh, would also provide a real economic stimulus to everyone in the country because all of that money now being paid uh, back to the Department of Education would just go into circulation in the economy. So it would be about a trillion dollar boost to the economy over 10 years. And that would be an actual stimulus and not um, these fake stimulus packages that they're peddling to us. I also think debtors can organize regionally. So what we're seeing in places, for example, Philadelphia, uh, is that the courts are closed because of the pandemic. So this creates an opening where you could demand that the courts halt collection. So just like um, activists have been making demands um, you know, on local police forces to not collaborate with ICE. I mean, you could say that the courts shouldn't be used um, as tools for debt collectors or you know, to you know, just like people are saying, uh, no evictions, right? So there, there could be a, a move for sort of regional, what we're calling no collection zones, where people are um, uh, use the power that the the local government or the state government has to protect the population from collection. And this is a demand that you know even makes sense in an age of austerity because all you're doing is asking the state not to do something, right? Not to aid collectors and creditors. Um, so I think regional organizing is an interesting prospect in this moment of. Uh, COVID politics. I think the financial, I, th I think debtor organizing opens up other forms of solidarity too. In um, if you look at the way that the corporate sector has been financialized. So, you know, labor organizing, I think is really key. We have to organize at the level of production, but uh, we can mix financial strategies in there. So, you know, there's some attention paid to GM, uh, recently, well, GM, just like so many other companies, you know, isn't just a car manufacturer anymore. It doesn't just deal in its core business. It also provides auto loans. It's, you know, it provides financial services. So what if, you know, um, borrowers who were in debt to GM went on strike in solidarity with those workers, right? So there's, a, there are, I think there's all sorts of untapped sort of solidarity strikes <laughs> that we could undertake or um, you sort of novel uh, forms of what we call economic disobedience that we could explore in this moment um, that could be really powerful. And, you know, another advantage to them is that, you know, to go, you don't need to go anywhere to go on a debt strike, right? You don't all need to be in the same place. So we used to sort of lament that debtor organizing was challenging because unlike labor organizing, debtors don't share a factory floor. Well, now the factory is shut down because of COVID-19. So, you know, the fact that debtors are geographically distributed and sort of uh, uh, isolated and don't share a geographic location is actually an advantage because our this is a tactic that continue can continue uh, even in an age of social distancing. Hey, well, I feel like, you know, could ask another another ten or fifteen <laughs> questions about um, about tactics for for organizing in a uh, in a in a COVID world um, around debt, but uh, 
unfortunately this is not a four-hour podcast um so uh, i just want to thank you so much for coming on hot and bothered oh my god thanks for having me that was writer organizer and documentarian astra taylor her books include the people's platform taking back power and culture in the digital age and most recently democracy may not exist but we'll miss it when it's gone the paperback and audiobook versions of that book each come out in May for Metropolitan Books and can be ordered from your favorite independent bookstore. Astra's most recent film is What is Democracy? And that can be streamed in most places where you stream things that are not Netflix. She is also a founder of The Debt Collective. You've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. That's it for this episode. We're hosted by Descent Magazine and produced by Colin Kinnebra. If you like what you've been hearing, please spread the word. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag HotBotheredClimate. And if you're able to pitch in to keep the podcast running and cover our cost of production, you can do that at patreon.com slash HotBotheredClimate. And as little as $3 a month can really make a difference. So until next time, stay hot. Stay bothered. And stay inside.